Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. What's up, guys? This is uh, Meditations with Miller. <laughs> what do you think? No? No? I love it. This is Mayhem with Miller. <laughs> it, it seems like it's mayhem right okay. now. We should tell your listeners what's going on. Hey, guys, this is Jason Miller, um, Luke's friend and fellow pastor. Uh, from another place, and uh, I get to take over Luke's podcast because Luke's first book is coming out. I'm super pumped about it, and I'm going to make him talk about it for the next uh, 45 minutes or something like that, and I'm super pumped. Uh, Should I read the ad now? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Okay, so I'm kind of cutting in the middle of this because Jason did the ad roll for last month's sponsor, and our I mean, my writing life coach, Annie F. Downs, said that I had to release this podcast the first week of October, like when the book releases. So, um, yeah. So if this seems weird, it's like a weird interruption, blame Annie F. Downs and remember her. While you read her book, remember God. Okay, here's here's the sponsor for the month. Everyone wants to make a difference in this world. Lipscomb University's Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Program specializes in, in training people to make huge differences in the lives of individuals, couples, and families. Whether you're a new college graduate, someone ready to make a significant career shift, or a minister who wants to expand the scope of your ministry, the Lipscomb Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Degree offers a rigorous 24-month program that can prepare you to become a difference maker. Located in Nashville, beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, Lipscomb's Marriage and Family Therapy Program is accredited by the Commission of Accreditation for Marriage and Family Therapy Education, which means this program has met the highest and most rigorous accreditation standards in the nation. Not just in the state, in the nation. To find out how you can become a difference maker, visit www.lipscomb.edu backslash MFT or call 615-966-5237 and ask for Kathy Johnson. Now taking applications for fall 2019. Now back to the show. How we do? Does that make you think, I shouldn't have gone to Notre Dame. <laughs> I should have gone to Northeastern. That's what that ad did. That's what it? that ad did? Yeah. If that's what gets you paid, I'll say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Hey, Luke, you got a book coming out. This is I, a big deal. I do, yeah. This is your first book. All right. Here's the first question for me. Uh, how many sermons have you preached? Uh, let's say I've been preaching every week since I was 18. I don't want to say how old I am, but let's call that almost two decades. Yeah. Because uh, you're older than me, just so the listeners know that. Thank you. By thank you. Bit. I think 800 would be realistic. To yeah, yeah. I mean, that's somewhere in there. And how many podcast episodes have you done? Uh, we're over 300 of those. Yeah. Okay. So that's a ton of ground that you've covered. I mean like a ton of ground that you've covered. Yeah. It's time to write your first book. I'm so curious. Like how did you decide what's your first like written word in the world going to be? How did you work through that process? I I didn't think of it as a book. I just started writing every day and I did the whole Stephen Pressfield war of art, like 500 words a day. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like, hey, this is the first word in a book. It was, hey, I'm going to start the writing process. And I, like, I did the whole fiction thing first, and that was terrible. And yeah. then like, I got to switch to nonfiction. But it was more like trying to articulate ideas and make sense of what was going on in my head than it was, hey, I'm going to write a book. I, I think in the future, if I write other books or when I write other books, yeah, yeah. I will have a far more deliberate like, plan. But So this is pretty organic. Like This emerged just like through the writing? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, it, okay. it I didn't write with a real vision for the book. 
of what became the book. Honestly, I had this, uh, this person I was talking to who was helping me in the early writing process and, uh, she's an agent and I had written like 20,000 words that I gave her to read. I was in Nashville, uh, speaking at uh, a conference in my friend's church, uh, Otter Creek. And I give her these 20,000 words. We meet for coffee before. And she goes, yeah, there's a book in here, but these 20,000 words, they're all bad. You need to start over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But there was a story. There was was a book in there. There there, was a book in there. That wanted to come out. And I think it emerged, but Mm -hmm. I I mean, it, it, it wasn't at the very beginning of the process of knowing exactly where I was ending up. Yeah. So the book that eventually came out is called God Over Good, Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God. Um, you come out of the gate in this thing with this baby ant and baby human metaphor that I'm going to make you share just so you can be a little <laughs> uncomfortable. So give it to us. Um, so what, I, what the metaphor is communicating... <laughs> no, don't disclaim it. Give us the metaphor, man. It's a good metaphor. Oh, I, like it. I don't know if I can do it justice uh, cold like that. But here's the basic premise is if you had... <laughs> this is so bad to say out loud. It was bad enough to write it, but... Um, if you if you put a baby ant and a baby human being in a forest, which one of them would have a better chance at viability? That sounds like a better way of saying which one do you think would die first? Also, you, you use the word squishy to describe the baby. I just want to I just want to bring you back to the text. They they are squishy. I've I've had three children that uh, I've known very well, and they are squishy. But the metaphor is if you start with an an exoskeleton compared to an endoskeleton. Mm -hmm. And if you start with like this thin crusty shell that an ant has, you can start off and it gets you going, but it prevents your ability to grow. Whereas if you have a, a, an exoskeleton like human beings do, do I have that opposite? I think other way around, right? Exoskeleton is outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. This is the first interview about the book. So (laughs) I'm warming up to this. But if, if you have a skeleton inside that you have all the squishy stuff around it has to grow. It has to become hard. You, like, like babies' heads, when they come out, they have that fontanelle, mm-hmm. that soft spot, which is required to get through the birth canal, mm-hmm. but it makes them extremely vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's like the infancy, infancy stage of humanity, but it's also like two different perspectives on faith, yeah, where you can start yeah. off and build like this shell that you think is going to keep you safe from mm-hmm. all threats outside, and that's going to get you going. It's going to be a really great place to start, but eventually it will thwart your ability to grow into a more evolved creature, like an ant. Yeah. An ant's going to start off strong, but it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Whereas humanity is the, the top of the food chain. Even though we're, of most creatures, we are extremely vulnerable for the majority of our years, like 10, 12 years, mm-hmm. a human being can't like really even defend themselves. Mm-hmm. But in the end, like we're at the top of the food chain because we go through that vulnerable stage so that we can evolve into what we're created to be. Yeah. I, um, squishy aside, <laughs> actually, I actually love the metaphor. You wrote that the system that was initially protecting them now traps them, mm-hmm. um, the exoskeleton. Yeah. And I like so resonate with that. And that's sort of your opening framing for this whole project. Um, I wanted to interview you right then and say, why does it resonate so much with you? <laughs> <laughs> you're not you can't do that today i'm going to we're gonna have a conversation okay, that's but, fair that's fair okay. but why did it resonate with you uh i think because um both personally and pastorally i think uh personally for sure but i think lately as a pastor um i just keep seeing that that process in people um when you and i actually did one of these episodes before i kind of joked but kind of seriously said uh south and city church my private mantra is a great place to lose your faith yep and i, I don't mean that we're rooting for people to lose faith but what i do mean is 
there's a shedding and growing process yep. in real faith. And I feel like a lot of communities set themselves up against that process. Yep. And we want to be a church that actually is for that process. Yeah. And so I love that. Like I really resonate with this. This is about like shedding some of that protective layer that maybe helped you when you were early and vulnerable in your faith, but now it's time to grow up and develop a core. I love that. Yeah. Uh, there's a prayer from Meister Eckhart or something that extent of God help me to lose my wrong understandings of you. Yeah. And yeah. I like some of us don't like have the ability to shed. We don't have yeah. the ability to like transcend and move forward. Yeah. And I think that's really how you lose your faith. It's not shedding unhealthy layers, right. but when it's an all or nothing, it's a zero sum game. Like yeah. that's when it all falls apart. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so then you, you jump like right into some provocations in your life, and you sort of like like take us into a moment um, where I like you said provocation. Like that's that Notre Dame degree paying off, right? <laughs> is there. it? Is yeah. that all it takes? Yeah, provocations. <laughs> um, so, uh, like just like what like some personal, some intellectual stuff. Um, that was part of you losing some expectations on your faith. Uh, you describe a moment where like the church around you is sort of celebrating a certain picture of God that you can't really get into at that moment. Yeah. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, when I came into grad school, I, I was more certain, one, that I would be a great pastor than I've been since then. Like when I was 20, I was like, I've got this thing under wraps. Like I got it. And also I felt like I understood who God was. And then eventually that that wasn't working because... I, like I built up what God is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in this worship service and everyone is is like declaring like the goodness of who God is. And I'm going, well, God, you don't do X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. of what I think God should do. And everyone's so confident of all this stuff. And I'm just going, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't feel good about this. Yeah. And in some ways that moment is... Um, uh, so a filmmaker friend of mine talks about having composite characters, hmm. like things that like pull a bunch of different like storylines. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like you have six different people in a in a story that you can't put them in a movie. And so they create this composite character that brings elements of those six people that is essential for the, the storyline. And in some way, like that moment is like a, a composite moment that represents right. a, a bunch of different moments. And it's not just about that one worship service that mm-hmm. I realize... I can't do this, but in a lot of ways, it's like a culmination of of all these things that I I thought God was supposed to be that, yeah. that never materialized. And I'm just in that moment going, I I don't have a voice to sing. Huh. Yeah. So so you name uh, both like uh, some intellectual uh, baggage or, or challenge and uh, personal. On the intellectual side, a lot of it's Bible stuff. It strikes me that like yeah. kind of a classic conundrum, like for a good Protestant, I think, right? Like, yeah. What is this book? Is it the book we said it was? I think a lot of people, uh, is it Mike McHarg who says something like the, 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 the greatest likelihood of a deconstruction is if you're going to actually read the whole Bible. <laughs> like if yeah. you're going to actually read this book mm-hmm. through and through and read it in, uh, critically. Um, you don't really hold back on the kind of litany of problems that you, that you offer. You talk about um, comparative literature in the ancient Near East. You talk about the fact that... Um, Along the way, we keep finding stories in the Bible that don't seem quite as unique as we might think they were. They seem like yeah. built on, like Moses's origin story. Sure, looks like uh, it's not the first time anybody wrote a story about a hero being born and put in a basket and floated down the river. Yeah. Um, you talk about the challenge of the historicity of the Exodus. Like if if that's a thing, it seems like a pretty big thing. Yeah. And a big thing like that ought to be uh, attested to in some other sources, probably. So you list all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you even get to the resurrection stuff with Jesus, and you you give some voice to some of the arguments that like might push back against whether that's like the real deal. Yeah, 
Yeah. I asked you. I asked you before we did this. Have you elders read the book? <laughs> <laughs> I gave him a little synopsis of what I was doing. If if Lindsay went out and made out with some other dude, my okay. wife Lindsay, yeah. it would. I would be distraught. I would be destroyed. If some other woman does that and and goes out and makes out with some other guy, I probably wouldn't care a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But it's only because I have like given my life to this person mm-hmm. and that she is my person and I am her person. And because of the weight of that relationship, she can hurt me in ways that no one else can and, and vice versa. And the Bible to me is what changed my life. Yeah. When I was a kid, I started reading the Bible every day and I still don't know how that started, but it did. And it, it changed who I was. It, it changed me into who I am. And it's only like the word betrayal is never going to be used if I go to my beloved Chipotle and like they don't give me guacamole. I'm not going to say they betrayed me. I think you might actually. I, okay, I know Chipotle, how you feel about yeah, Chipotle. Yeah. Okay, that example. <laughs> like if I go to <laughs> if I go to like Cece's Pizza okay. and they yeah, give yeah. me a bad pizza. Yeah, you don't feel betrayed. I don't feel betrayed. Like I feel, honestly, that's kind of like what I signed up for. <laughs> it, you don't use betrayal of something that you have a When deep, you love it. When yeah, you, a deep love yeah, yeah. and a deep mm-hmm. relationship with. And so the stuff about the Bible isn't like some like angry atheist on the internet who's complaining about a religion that they never really participated in. I'm I'm not throwing stones from outside a glass house. I'm in the house going, I I see the vulnerability. I see what's around us. I see what's around me. And you, uh, you write, all of this makes me wonder whether any of the historical accounts in the old Testament are true or whether they were just one culture's attempt to find identity and significance despite its relative weakness and inferiority. That's a, that's a pretty brave question. Yeah. I, and I think if we don't ask these questions, yeah. that what we're doing is we're acting like that ant and we're saying, I'm going to create this, this shell that I'm never going to grow out of. Whereas I think if you bring this stuff to the surface, if you acknowledge the fact that I, I'm a vulnerable human being and there are weaknesses to me, I think that makes you a better human being. I think as people of faith, people of the Christian faith, until you can acknowledge those questions... I think in some ways they will always enslave you. Yeah. And in in some way I hope that this can I don't want to call it a like a vaccine or something. Or but in some ways like when you're vaccinated for something, you get a taste of that illness mm-hmm. so that your body develops antibodies to be able to resist it. Yeah. If we don't if we don't acknowledge these things, if we don't taste some of these questions, then I don't think we can ever mature and like grow to a healthier version of what we're supposed to be. Yeah. So what, part of what I was interested uh, as I was reading was, like I was, I've been on a very similar journey. Um, the Bible for me was like a real crucible for sure. Like I grew up in the same tradition that you're a part of. And in our churches, like the Bible, we're not just Protestants. We're like, we're like solo, solo scripture. <laughs> At least that was yeah, my background. Yeah, we doubled down right? on it. Yeah, yeah right? So I grew up in that tradition, love that tradition. Um, and then like, you know, like high school, college, grad school, you start asking new questions. You start reading historical critical work. And um, so I really relate to that journey. I know like, I feel like, um, like when I sit with friends and we talk about that stuff, I feel like I've found um, a, a, a greater love for the text on the other side of some of those critical questions. Yeah. But, but I did think it was interesting that in this book, it feels like, it seems like you're not really interested in, giving the reader some of that resolution, even if you might have that, because mm-hmm. maybe that's not what this book is about. Hmm. Is that fair? I, um, I would hope that there is some resolution, and I hope yeah. that I can share at the end 
where where I've come and yeah. the fact that like I'm I, I still find life in scripture. And yeah, yeah. I, I, no, I get that from it totally. I don't but I mean like maybe some of those particular questions that you threw out oh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you do just kind of let them hang in the air, which I love. I saying like I love that you're I feel like that's a, that's a really important move in this book. Yeah. To what, actually what, let them hang out there. What I would hope is that I put those questions out there and I can show you that on the other side there is a way to be a deeply committed follower of Jesus yeah. who loves Scripture as Scripture reveals the inerrant Word of, of God, which is Jesus. And I, I can be a person who reads the Bible every day. Yeah. Have these questions. And so I hope that can be a roadmap for you to go, there's a way to the other side of this. Totally. And I don't mm-hmm. see myself as a biblical scholar. Mm-hmm. I see myself as a pastor. Right. And I would hope that I can model that there are ways to get here. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that would spark the curiosity in them for the reader to go, okay, these questions are there, I need to find a resolution for this mm-hmm. and to know that there, there's a way out there. And, and maybe I should have footnoted who to go read and to give them a spoon-fed answer. <laughs> maybe some people would like that, but I don't think that's really the spirit of what I'm trying to model, right. which is, yeah. first of all, these questions are always going to be there. Second of all, y- you need to grow. Like we all yeah, need to do yeah. the work to, to yep. get somewhere. And we can't expect someone to spoon-feed us all the answers because spoon feeding is really similar to that sort of like the ant with the, the exoskeleton. It's just yeah. like, oh, you can tell me what to say so I can patch up the wall to keep everything outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, re- I really resonate with that. Um, you go on from some of these kind of intellectual problems uh, to this kind of deeper, more felt experience of a person, right? You talk about uh, your mom's chronic illness, your brother's divorce, the train wreck at your first full-time ministry job, your words. Uh, (laughs) just to clarify that's not me characterizing your experience no uh church plant that you led that never grew and uh, this incident from your childhood um that kind of came back at you um so there's like a real personal like it's not just this intellectual game for you no i I think some people have a, a strongly intellectual issue but i think all theology is autobiography and i think anytime we try to divorce the humanity from the questions we miss truly what's going on. And so I think you could have intellectual issues, but if your life experience is like, hey, that's all good, I think you could probably be fine. Hmm. Um, but I don't think that's what life is. Mm-hmm. I think as scripture tells us, in this world you will have trouble. Like everyone's gonna have trouble and it's gonna look different for every person. Y- your struggles are gonna be different from my struggles, but we're all gonna have one thing in common that they have struggles. Yeah, And I I think let's put those on the table and to acknowledge that we're not merely creatures that have intellectual problems, but we are people who have life problems and they all kind of coincide together. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell a story of Darwin where a lot of people think Darwin's faith devolved because of something nice, he found. Nice pun. Huh? Nice pun. See what I did there? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, okay. I was sorry, trying to come up sorry. with another one and you got me off target. <laughs> I'm but, sorry. Um, anyway, um, that it happened because of something he found in, the, in a science laboratory. But a lot of people point to the fact that his daughter, who I believe his name was Annie, she was 11, and she passes away from a disease that they didn't know it was called back then. And after that, a lot of people have pointed to the fact that it was that real-life suffering that caused Darwin's faith to devolve. It Mm -hmm. wasn't something that happened in the scientific laboratory. So I, I think a lot of times when people's faith is crashing, it's the intellectual issues are real, but I think they're also coupled with life experiences as well. Yeah. Uh, so, side note, I, I, th- I thought this was super interesting because like, I'm a big fan of your podcast. Uh, you write, the entire reason I started my podcast and recorded hundreds of episodes was to get respected people to help me make sense of the faith I was fighting to keep. 
first of all, I think for your listeners, if they weren't like aware of that, that's actually really interesting to know that this mm. comes from a really personal place. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so you kind of like, you kind of draw all that together and sort of describe the experience of having to sort of confront your expectations. Like what's God mm. supposed to be? What's the Bible supposed to be? What's faith supposed to be? And what do I do if none of it lives up to that? Yeah. Is that sort of a fair sort of framing yeah. of the whole setup of yeah, this? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. That, so our publish, my publisher, I say our, like we're working on this book together. Um, you endorsed it so in some ways. You did work. <laughs> yeah, I did work. Sure. Um, my publisher, Baker, they do a lot of like the promotional stuff. Uh, is God living up to what you expect? And so it's like their little catchphrase. They put on stickers and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think... I think there's a reason they're sensing that that connects because I think a lot of us experience that what we receive and who God is isn't always what we expect God to be. Yeah. And I think that's not just us, but like that's, that's a humanity thing. It's not just this generation, this time, but like this is an ongoing thing. I like that's the Meister Eckhart thing. Yeah, yeah. And when, when the phrase coming of age is used, I think, I feel like that is like some weird like sexual thing, like a sexuality story or something. So I feel like using this metaphor might be problematic, but I think there's a, is that, am I right? Like you're, you into Notre Dame. I think it at least connotes that or Does it, it can be used in that way. All right. Well then. I don't know that it has to be though. You edit this out since you're in charge of this podcast. No, no, um, no, no, it's, it's in. No, no. The, the process of growing up and yeah, I don't yeah. want to say coming of age now, but the process of growing up and maturing like always involves acknowledging the disappointments yeah, that yeah. happen because the life that you imagine is not the life that often oh, you man, experience. Totally. Um, side note, like I, I think, I think it's Augustine, which is interesting because Augustine's the guy that kind of does the original sin thing on mm-hmm. Adam and Eve in the garden. But I think it might also be Augustine who offers an interpretation of that moment as the loss of innocence in human experience. Yeah. Like, and then the feeling of exile from your knowledge of God, from your experience of God. Yeah. That that's, it's not like, <clears throat> describing like a tragedy that we should have avoided, but that it's describing the very sort of archetypal human journey of yes. like the loss of innocence, the coming of age, the, um, yeah, you talk about good old Luke in the book mm-hmm. and that impulse when you feel like your faith is falling apart to try to get back to what it was, the, like, and how that's maybe not really the right way to go. But I, like, it's like, can we run back into the garden when maybe it's like the journey doesn't offer that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. Like, yeah. I think that's, I like the, the metaphor of getting back in the garden because I yeah. think that is an archetypal thing yeah. that we want to go back. But I, I think in the, the Genesis story is like, it's, this is humanity's move to civilization. Like they get clothes mm-hmm. and I think the clothes symbolize moving forward. But a lot of times we want to go back. Yeah. And yeah. I think life is not found going back to what you once were. Mm-hmm. It's always going forward. Yeah. Um, when you talk about... Uh, losing your expectations to save your faith. I'm kind of curious to hear you talk about how you think about sort of defining expectations versus hope mm-hmm. versus faith. Yeah. To what extent are they the same thing? How are they different? Yeah. Uh, Cause I think for a lot of readers, and I love that you're doing this in the book. I think a lot of people might start with the assumption, well, my expectations of God are my faith, right? Mm, yeah. That like, well, yeah. If I, you know, if my faith is God will do this and God will be like this. And so how is losing my, my expectations, not losing my faith. Well, that's good. When I'm using expectations, I'm thinking of these are things that God is supposed to do that I think jump outside of what is revealed to us in Jesus. And I, I think maybe I would disassociate what Jesus claims and then what I put on top of that. Yeah, It's like, yeah. 
I think our expectations, you can find them at, on a contract that we have kind of constructed constructed in our own head mm-hmm. that usually only has one signature and that's our own signature on it yeah and so god i'll do this because you'll do that yeah and so i'll be like i'll live the good christian life and you know i'll go to a christian college and and i'll marry the right girl and i'll like go and serve in a church and therefore what i will have is like no suffering yeah and that's sort of like like you don't find that in in scripture like yeah. that that's not jesus it's like a radically selective interpretation to get there right yeah exactly a little bit of proverbs and uh yeah i don't know maybe that's it yeah maybe just proverbs <laughs> yeah. maybe that's definitely just it i mean yeah. as someone who went to notre dame i mean you didn't even go to a christian college really so <laughs> i mean you're not gonna ever get that <laughs> oh man it's a good thing we're winning this year because uh, otherwise i might be really tender right now about that um yeah, man. Uh, so, so you start to kind of like move forward into a really positive vision of faith on the other side of expectations. I love that about the book. Um, and you offer some of these sort of movements. Uh, like one of the movements that you offer is from magical thinking to mystical seeing. Yeah. I thought that was really strong. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I think, I think without an, a lived experience in connection to God, we just stay in our head. And I think staying in our head is usually a recipe for faith to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm trying to move away from is just this, just a set of ideas that I hold to, principles that I think this is what Christianity is, instead of an encounter with who God is. And so I think that the mystical scene is a way of experiencing the world. If you want to use different language, I know some people might have baggage with, with mystical. And I've that's one of the things I'd that's terrible about the writing process that I have six months after I finished it or whatever <laughs> to, to just, rethink and go, maybe uh, I shouldn't have said mystical. Um, but this, like the whole Pauline language of pray without ceasing. Yeah. Like we're not saying that our father 400 times a day, but, mm-hmm. but you live in a way that your, your heavenly parent is available and present. Yeah. And I think that's sort of uh, embodied spirituality where wherever I go, I'm going to encounter God in this. I'm going to be present to God's involvement in my life. And it's not just when I want God to do the right thing. And so the magical thinking is that if, if, if I put the right coin in, the vending machine is going to give me the refreshment I want. Yeah. And so the magical thing is like if I say the prayer, if I say the Our Father 400 times, then therefore God is always going to give me good things. Yeah. And moving away from thinking that God is just in the good things to seeing God in all things is that sort of mystical disposition I'm pushing towards. Yeah. I, I, reson- I resonate with you on the, sometimes I tell my church like, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but I don't know how else to say it. I'm actually aiming for us to become mystics. And I know it's yeah. like it can be a confusing word or it can feel like it, it ventures into the wrong territory. But I, like when I read the scripture, when I read the New Testament, when I read Paul, mm-hmm. Paul, like the, the favorite of the doctrinaires, when I read Paul, I actually see a mystic like through and through, yeah. right? I mean, he's also trying to think theologically, but I, when I read Jesus, I see a mystic. I don't know how, I don't know how to get around that. Yeah, when... When you're apprehensive about saying mystic and mm-hmm. trying to get you to be mystics, what are you responding to? Like, what makes you apprehensive to say that? I think um, maybe maybe uh, it feels a little like woo woo. Um, <laughs> like, for, for, how about this? For those who are um, who maybe don't have much faith background, for them, I'm concerned it might feel a little spooky. Yeah. For those who do have a faith background, I'm afraid it might feel a little sloppy. A, yeah. You know what I mean? Like unstructured. Well, what? You know, how do you make sure you're not just following your feelings? How do you make sure yep. you're not just, and I, and I've like, like growing up in church, going to a Christian college, that'd be my, my undergrad since Notre yeah. Dame wasn't apparently. Yeah. yeah. Um, Thank you. 
like I have seen where like certain versions of what people might call like uh, a mystical faith or whatever, I've seen them go off the rails. I've yeah. seen them just get completely unmoored from any kind of critical thought or from anything really like like fruitful in a life. So I can appreciate the hesitation there. Yeah, but I don't know how to get around it. No, when Paul is talking so much about yeah, I went up to the the heavens yeah, this the is, third heaven or whatever yeah, like, yeah. W- once you jumping past the first heaven to get second and third like <laughs> clearly you're tapping into something here that, right. that i'm not seeing and voices from god not just the road to damascus but yeah. the voice that says my, my grace is sufficient for you like yeah these yeah. sort of like charismatic experiences yeah i think are almost essential not that yeah. like I, i've never had an audible voice speak to me yeah but i do feel like the light continues to shine on me and yeah. I feel like the light is guiding me places and I'm, a, I'm aware that God is somehow involved in, in who I am at the core of my identity is there is some force that's pushing me forward mm-hmm. and I want to lean into that and as a person of the Christian faith, I name that as the Holy Spirit and, mm-hmm. and God's work in my life. Yeah. I, I think of um, Willard's Divine Conspiracy. I'm kind of going back through that right now. Uh, chapter 3 is something like what Jesus knew and like this God-soaked world or this God-bathed world. And like he moves through that chapter and talks about Jesus's awareness of the presence of God, like saturating the world and the delight of God. Yeah. Like, and I, and that, that, to me, that's a, that's kind of a mystical awareness that you move through your world. Mm -hmm. Not that all things are, not that all experiences are good or easy or pleasant, but that somehow you become the kind of person who has that mystical vision, which is to just know the presence of God in all things. And I'm like, that sounds, yeah. that sounds like a really worthwhile life. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is Joan Chittister's, in this moment is the essence of everything glorious I've been given in life, and it's enough. Wow. Like, I, 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 I go back to that one, and every time I let wow. that, that phrase just, like, yeah. m- guide me through the day, I'm in a better place. Yeah. In this moment is the essence of everything glorious I've been given in life, and it is enough. Yeah. Right? Like, that's good. That's good. And I, not, to, not to Enneagram out on you, but for a seven to say it is enough. Yep. Right? That's yep. a strong thing. I, that is, as old Barbara Brown Taylor would like to say, like, what's saving you today? Like, the statement that, like, this is enough. Yeah. I don't need more. I need uh-huh. less. And that's why uh, Audrey Assad, yeah. uh, is that her name? Yeah. Like, her song "I Shall Not Want," hmm. like that's that's saving me. Yeah, but, but that's like that's an awareness of God. Obviously, it's filtered through my own lens that I see the world through as an Enneagram Seven. But I, I still think like that's God's involvement and in, and that's God's work in my life. And so when I have that sort of lively interaction with the transcendent, the presence of intellectual inconsistencies or real life disappointments don't have the last and final word. Like there is something else like there's, it's almost like that, that mystical connection is like the bass note. It's, it's in everything. And so there are going to be other sounds that come around it, but I, but I always have that bass note that's like pulling me back to center. Yeah. Was that music metaphor somewhat appropriate? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Try. (laughs) Try. No, 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 no. That was, that was beautiful, man. Um, let me do another one. It's like when you're doing muscle ups and you have that false (laughs) grip. And so like you hold on to that grip. And so even when things get weak in like your hips and so you can't kip well or, you uh, still to have to Luke's listeners here, he was trying to get me to wake up early so I could work out with him, and it <laughs> definitely didn't happen. <laughs> so now I feel like you're just trying to <laughs> get that in here. We didn't do muscle-ups today. <laughs> um, you talk about story, not answer. 
Yeah. Uh, which I think is another sort of transformation on the other side of this process of letting go of some expectations. Yeah. Uh, say more about that. It's the, it's the move to say, I, I don't have to play this game. Like the, like, so as a member of the Church of Christ, I'm kind of evangelical. Like I'm kind of evangelical, but <laughs> I'm evangelical-ish. Kind of, yeah, ish. Like, and so, like I get like that's the people around me uh, in, in our tradition, but not really one. And so like a lot of the fights that the evangelical world finds themselves in, I don't like, I just go, yeah, that's a fight that y'all are having. I don't feel like I need to be in the middle of it. And sometimes I think the fights that we try to have, we need to just like sidestep and go, honestly, that's not one we're, we're ever going to win. Mm-hmm. It's not one that we need to, to fight on. And the issue of theodicy, like where's God in suffering is a huge issue for us. But it's not an issue for the Bible. Like the Bible is mm. n- never gives us a robust theodicy. It doesn't ever say this is why suffering happens. It just says here's the story. Yeah. And it's almost like you fast forward to to the movie, and it just basically fast forward through the commercials. The movie really <laughs> starts, and it just is like there's an enemy at the gate. Let's defend it. Hmm. They don't tell you where the enemy come fr- comes from. It doesn't tell you the backstory of why your people and those people are at war. It just says the enemy is at the gate. We need to do something about it. And I think that's what the Bible does with the Odyssey. It says it's there, it exists, and Jesus is the answer for that. Yeah. And so what we have is a story of God in the person of Jesus stepping into the worst that the world has to offer. We don't have a solution as to, to why the world has all these terrible things. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I, I, we, we were talking earlier, I, I'm observing that you've raised a bunch of questions in this book. And the, some, some of the questions you've raised might lead to a book that's a theodicy. Some of the questions that you've raised might lead to a book that's an apologetic. Mm-hmm. And I see you doing neither, no. which I actually find really pastorally insightful. Because no. I, I feel like there's a third thing that you're offering, which is, like, you can go out and read an apologetics book. You can go out and find a theodicy. But maybe something else is sort of on offer when we lose our expectations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When someone's going through a crisis of faith, old Luke would want to say, you need to read this book or let me give you this argument. And what I would do now is I want to create life-sustaining practices yeah. that would help you weather the storm. I don't want to try to rationalize how the storm doesn't matter or I don't want to like yeah. give you a, a map that's going to say, okay, if you just go here, then you'll get away from all storms. Instead, yeah. I want to say like, these are things that are going to sustain you when the storms happen. Yeah, you tell that story about the guy with the boots on the boat. And yeah. um, you say, uh, you write, um, too often when our faith is in crisis, we throw overboard the practices that actually have the ability to keep us afloat. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to press into that a little bit with you because I, um, I find that really helpful. But I'm also curious about it. So, um, like, I, I find myself with a lot of friends who are going through the loss of some of their expectations around faith. The Bible's not what they thought it was. Mm-hmm. God didn't answer the prayers that they thought a good God would answer. That's yep. been really, really yep. real for a lot of people. Um, and then somewhere in that journey, a lot of other stuff gets lost, too. Mm-hmm. And then they, find, they wake up one day, and they have not only... Um, they don't have the beliefs they used to have, but they don't have the practices they used to have because it feels yep. like they all went down the same yep. sort of disposal. Um, but I'm curious, how do you talk to people who are like, but pr- the practices are like, they assume the beliefs, right? Yep. Like prayer seems to assume some beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, even like going to church for a lot of people, they would say, well, the people who go to church are the people who believe these things. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's right, but I'm like, how would you talk about, how, how could you hold on to your practices if you're losing some of your beliefs? Well, I think going to a church like the one that, that you started and that you're leading 
is a church that makes space for the laments and the, the doubts and the questions. And so that's my executive minister. Do you know what an executive minister is? <laughs> they do a lot of the stuff for you that you don't want to do when you're a pastor. I feel like your listeners need to know that uh, I lead a church that's looking for... Can I, can I get a plug in yeah, here? Yeah, plug it in. We're in the hiring process. <laughs> it, might, it might be done by the time this interview comes out, but uh, Luke just likes to gloat that he and I are both preachers. That's kind of both how we're, how we're wired, but I spent a lot of my week managing a church operation while he, I don't know, you meditate and you read a book and Write then you sermons. stand up and say something pretty. Is that Yeah, you? yeah. <laughs> stand up and say something pretty. Yeah, that's basically all I do. Um, I'm really happy for you. Thank you. Okay, uh, where were we before that? Oh, uh, going to a church like yours. <laughs> yeah. a, a church like yours makes space for the fact that yeah. you don't always have everything together and that yeah. your Christianity is imperfect. And I don't think y'all are trying to create a pretense that you come here if you've got it all right. figured out. Yeah. And so I think that's the benefit of churches that are being honest and doing what you're doing where you can say, and this is a, a church that you can lose your faith in because we're making space for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so ideally, like there are healthier ways to view those practices. And I, I can see the connection and the correlation that people think, if, if I don't believe, then why do I pray? Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a, a deeper way to understand what prayer is, that it's not, this isn't the resolution of your issues, it's a place to deal with your issues. And I, uh-huh. I think that's the the richness of what scripture teaches us about psalms is that you have these amazing psalms where one of my favorite psalms the psalmist goes if i would have said the words these words that i'm thinking i would have betrayed you god and everyone else because when i went to the temple all i could see is how things didn't go how i expected it to go yeah and how the evil get good things and the good people end up with bad things Hmm. um until i went to the temple and then i started to make sense of all this Um, so what I would want to say is, like, I get these are Christian practices. A Christian is someone who does these things, doesn't always think these things. So a Christian mm-hmm. is more about um, orthopraxy, right right behavior, right practices, instead of just right thinking. Yeah. And so there's, there's space that, yeah, there are times this isn't going to make sense to you, mm-hmm. but you're committed to it. And so I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who's um, in a distance running. Mm-hmm. And he was going through a struggle, and he's like, you know, it's really hard to, my faith is just falling apart. And I was like, dude, but as an athlete, like, you get up and run 15 miles on Saturdays that you don't want to run on. You get up and, like, those Tuesday morning, early morning 10-mile runs, you do those even when when the weather's not good and you're not feeling right, because that's just what you do as an athlete. And I think the same thing with faith is there are times that it's not there, but if you want to be a person of faith, you have to be a person who has practices of faith. And that's what sustains you, even when intellectually everything doesn't line up. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, to me, and what I feel like what I'm observing both in my own life and people I'm walking with, um, I'm learning to ask people, tell me about prayer in your life. Not because I like am checking in, making sure they're praying, but I feel like, um, Sometimes we like we really find out what's going on when we sort of interrogate our own sort of experience of prayer. Yeah. Because that's like the real place, right? Like I could ask you how your marriage is going and you could talk abstractly, but I'm like, I mean, I would if I was like your marriage counselor, I might be like, tell me about the nature of intimacy for the two mm-hmm. of you right now. Then then we went, might really find out like what's going on. It right? was weird when you said that to Lindsay when we <laughs> last night when we were talking. talking. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we appreciate your concern for us though, but uh, thank you. Um, I'm curious, can I ask you, and I, I actually do want to be kind of tender about this because it is, it is, um, really personal, but I'm curious, like for you, like through this journey in your life, um, how, how would you narrate the movement of, of prayer through all of that? Yeah. I would say my prayer life now is better than it hmm. ever has been before. I would say it was really difficult 
uh, in the darkest seasons because I, I wanted to pray. I didn't know how to pray. And a lot of what's saved me in my prayer is learning to rely on the words of other Christians mm. and to like fling myself upon the faith of the great cloud of witnesses and to not feel like all this is based on my emotions and I'm going to like root myself into something bigger than just myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that is where I am right now. I think earlier my prayer life, if, if you hear me even describe my early Christianity, it was, yeah. I read the Bible. Right, so uh, yeah. I'm an Enneagram five or seven. Sevens and I'll go to five, yeah. and so it's all intellectual, and so I'm just thinking about stuff. And so the the emotional, the the affect of prayer is not going to be natural to me. And so mm-hmm. that's been something that's had to I've had to grow into more, which I think is part of the reason like my struggles existed as they did because, mm-hmm. um, like there are a lot of times where just like I, I haven't prayed. And I go to church on Sunday. Uh, years ago, I'd go to church and I'm like, eh, this might be the only time I've prayed mm. all week. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's a very insightful question to ask. I think it gets to the core of what's going on. Does prayer today, uh, does it, does it, you said it's, it's like healthy, it, like it's, it's vibrant for you right now. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it different substantially from what you might have described a vibrant prayer life looking like? I mean, you said you're learning to lean on the, the words of others. Yeah. Is there more to that? It, it's less about talking at God, hmm. which is what I used to do. And it's more of meditating and listening and being contemplative. And instead of talking at, listening to, and instead of, I, I've got to say X, Y, and Z, to, to now sometimes it's uh, the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And to work through... Uh, it's not prayer beads, but it's a prayer rope that I have and mm-hmm. just working through that single prayer to working through the Lord's prayer. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's less of when I first met you, we had to fill a conversation. Otherwise there's an awkward thing in our relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I are friends enough now mm-hmm. that it's like, okay, we're just going to sit here and be quiet and that's okay. And we can be in the presence yeah, of each other and yeah. there's not the sense of like, I've got to fill this. And so I feel like that... Yeah, I think yeah. there's a, I forget the, the name of the book, but it's Ar- Armchair Mystic. And it talks about one of the stages of prayer is wasting time with God. Huh. And obviously you're not wasting it, but the metaphor is built on the idea that you're not like accomplishing it. Yeah, you're not like evaluating it, it whether it's exactly. productive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. Um, you say uh, toward the end of the book, you say, um, oh no, I, are we okay on time? Yeah. I really want to get into this dust and divine thing for a moment because I think okay. it's like really strong. Um, so you've like toward the end of this thing, you dig into, I, I feel like you're sort of making peace with the humanity in our churches and in our faith and even in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. You've got a whole chapter on that. Talk to us about that. What about you want me to talk? <laughs> um, why'd you write the chapter? Like, what are you doing there? I, again, this is me making sense of it for myself. Yeah. Because one of my expectations is if the Bible is God's word, then it shouldn't, it should live up to what I think a divine book should look like. Hmm. If the church is God's people, mm-hmm. I think people should always look like God. If they're God's people, right? Like you'll be called, uh, blister the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God hmm. because they carry around the characteristics of God. But church isn't perfect. And one of the, the struggles of what you and I do is we don't just go to church and receive the meal of what church is, the life of the church we're always making the meal. Mm-hmm. And as the people who are, who are in the kitchen, as the ones who see how the proverbial sausage is made, 
you see the messy components of it and you see a lot of the humanity and that can disenfranchise people from the beauty of what the church is when you see that it, it's messy, that yeah, you see yeah. that Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them killed him, right? Like one of them was essentially involved in his death and his demise. Uh, and I've never had someone try to crucify me at church, literally. <laughs> yet. Um, yet. Um, I've had a few people who weren't happy with me. Um, but I think you have to make sense of that. Yeah. Like, how, how do you make sense of the fact that yeah. church people sometimes act bad to people? Mm. Sometimes church people can be terrible. And uh, until you make sense of that, then I think you'll always be disappointed with what church is. If, if you can't acknowledge that these are all people who are in their own journey, on their own spiritual formation process, that they are all a work in process still, and you hold them to the expectation that they have to be perfect, then you're going to be like, you're going to be disenfranchised at church. But I, I love the, the line, I don't know who said it, but uh, people always say that church is full of hypocrites, and it's not. There's always room for one more. Because <laughs> like, we're, we're all imperfect. Yeah. And until yeah. you say, there's dust here, then you're not going to be able to truly receive the divine that you also find there. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Um, it seems like for a faith which has at its center incarnation, like this ought to be, we've got to be really good at this. Yep. Right? Like, like, like flesh and spirit, um, earthy and divine, like all wrapped up, but we're really not. Like, yep. I think we need to keep being called back to it. I, I think I also related to that because um, we were kicking around before we hit record, but... Uh, Pete N's book, Inspiration and Incarnation, really helped me with the Bible. Because yeah. I think I was starting to move toward the idea that the humanity of the Bible is not a threat to the divinity of the Bible. I was starting to move toward that. Yeah. But his work really helped me get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and on the other side of that, like for me, like um, reading the Bible with historical critical tools, not that that's the end game, but that it, help, it helps me understand yes. what's happening in the text, has actually brought me to fresh and really vital encounters with the text that weren't available to me um, before I opened myself up to the humanity of the text. Yeah. Like one example that uh, I, um, so when I was in grad school, I was going through the same, like a lot of what you describe in the book, right? Just the historical critical journey in the text. Um, And so I'm sitting there in my prophets class. We have this guest prof from Duke. She's a rock star. I'm really moved by the class, but at the same time, like she's really comfortable with, you know, Isaiah one through 39 is probably Isaiah Isaiah 40 through 55 is probably Deutero Isaiah, like a generation later, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she has us read Isaiah 40, that passage that like Christians love. It's like embroidered on pillows, you know, like yeah. those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount on wings like eagles, all that stuff. And uh, she, so before we reread the text, she did this lecture on um, the Israelites in exile in Babylon on the eve of their liberation to be returned back to their homeland. And she describes this 900-mile journey home by foot mm-hmm. to a devastated homeland and a decimated temple. And she says, so this is a people who are on the eve of their liberation, but who know that when it happens, it'll be a long walk home. Wow. And then I started thinking about um, a person I love who I'm very close with who's um, been um, through a really uh, intense um, substance abuse journey and, and now in a really beautiful recovery journey. But this was um, when they were still mostly... Um, using and destroying themselves. And when she talked about people who are on the eve of their liberation, but who have a long walk home, this person's Uh, face came to mind. And then we're reading Isaiah 40. um, And I start like tearing up in this really dry lecture in class. (laughs) I'm sitting there like a, 
you know what I mean? I have to leave uh, during the break and kind of go find some space. And I, and I kind of weep over the text. And like, it had been a long time at that point in my life since the text moved me to weeping. Yeah. And it wasn't in spite of like the historical critical. It wasn't in spite of the humanity. Because it can feel kind of human that maybe, maybe the person we thought wrote this text didn't write this text. Right? That can feel like the part of the Bible that's not yeah. super divine. And I feel like it was on the other side of that that I actually found it like alive for me again. And I even feel the same for my church now, like as a pastor, um, thanks to voices like yours, I'm, I'm learning to really celebrate the humanity in my church. Mm-hmm. Not, not, to, um, not to not call out our best, but to like just recognize that's like the project, right? That's what we're doing together. Yeah. Like fully human, and then God's going to show up in the midst of all that. I, I found that really helpful, man. Uh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, you say toward the end, you say one sign that we are maturing is when we find ourselves believing in a God we don't always like. Yeah. You want to unpack that a little bit? I mean, I feel like we've been kind of working toward that through all this. Yeah. So I did this, uh, trailer for the book that, uh, like the man on the street interview and I did one and there's this girl running. It's like, it's Austin. People are always like outside fitness and all that stuff. And so she's running, it's like hundred degrees outside Mm -hmm. that day. And she's running. And so I turned to my friend, Charlie, who's helping me do the video. And I said, hey, can you, can you run with me? And he's like, yeah, I can do this. And then so she's running, and she's probably 10 feet away. And I go, hey, can I, I'll, I'll run with you, but will you answer a question? She's like, oh, yeah, sure. Super friendly, like Texan. And so I'm running with her, and I say, if you, could, if you were God for a day, what would you do? And she said, I'd bring back my dad. And then she turns to me and goes, Sorry. Because uh, she understood the weight of yeah. like what she just did is like she just she's running in a hundred degree heat, and she knows in a split second exactly what she would do if she was God, mm-hmm. like it, which to me says like that's not in the deep recesses of her soul. Like I'm not saying she was thinking about it when she was running. I'm just saying it was very available to her, mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen. And this is a girl who's based on normal age expectancy should be alive today. Mm-hmm. But that's not what she's got. And if God is all-powerful, I, I wish God would do that. And there are a, a litany of things that I would say exactly like that right now. But that's not the God I get. And that's the God I would really like. But the one I get is the one I have that's been revealed to me in the person of Jesus. And I believe that one to be true and good and loving. Good in the sense that God is always for you. Not good in the sense that it lives up to my definition of what good is. And so in that sense, like, I don't like a God that doesn't stop the Holocaust. Like, I, I don't like a God who doesn't step in and say, okay, this refugee crisis, it's too much. We're going to fix this. Y- y'all can stay home. You can stay with your people. You're not going to lose your loved ones. But that's not the one that's on the table. Hmm. But I still believe that one to be true and ultimately for humanity. Hmm. I, um, I remember hearing a, like a, a marriage therapist like on a TV show saying that they like had this way of pretty accurately predicting whether a marriage would last. And uh, this person said, like, like, we've been doing this work for like 40 years. We've, we can measure the outcomes. And they said uh, they'll observe married couples. Like, I think if, if a couple signs up for it, they'll even like put a camera in their living room and just kind of watch mm-hmm. their married life for a little bit. And they said like the number one indicator of a marriage that won't last is if they never fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like you're kind of describing like a lover's quarrel. Yeah. Like that's like, yep. That's on the other side of this too. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a reason that so much of scripture uses this like romantic metaphor Hmm. for your relationship with God, like bride and groom. Like 
I think there's something in that. Uh, I also think it's fitting that that's the second marriage metaphor you've used. <laughs> and uh, between the two of us... Why is that fitting? I, I don't know. I'm just saying that uh, it's, it's great. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I'm just, well, I'm just like, maybe my follow-up question is, why is that on your mind? Is there something going on in your life right now that... There isn't. I have a mistress. She's beautiful. She's demanding. Her name is Southland City Church. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I can't wait to meet her in a few weeks. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, I want to wrap this up. I'm going to have you read something from the book. Oh, gosh. And you don't get to say no because you gave me the, uh, the yeah. episode. All right. Um, before we do, uh, seriously, I want to tell your listeners, the book comes out Tuesday, October 2nd. You can pre-order it. I'm assuming like anywhere books are available. Yeah. Um, highly recommend it. I recommend it for anyone who's personally sort of wrestling with whether their faith has lived up to their expectations and what you do on the other side of that. Also highly recommend it for pastors. Like as a pastor, like I found the book super helpful to think about how to walk with other people. And uh, I'm excited for people in my church to read it. Uh, so don't, don't miss the chance. And I'll do this too. Like I understand for, for new authors, pre-orders matter. First weeks of sales matter, right? Yeah. So if you love Luke in any way, if you're, if you're a fan of Luke, if you want to help Luke, if you want to support Luke, if you've been... Uh, benefiting from the tireless work that he's put into the podcast over the years. And if you've ever preached anything in a sermon that you heard on Luke's podcast, (laughs) or if you ever realized you didn't have to read the book because Luke read it for you and did a good interview, you could pay it back, get the book. Pay it forward, yeah. Yeah, pay it forward. Yeah, Yeah. that'd be a good thing. Seriously, uh, I'm a big fan of this work, Luke. And I'm really glad that it's going to be out there in the world. And uh, every one of your listeners should buy it right away. That being said, uh, you have this uh, prayer for your reader at the end of the book. And uh, I thought it'd be actually kind of like really fitting for you to read that. What do you think? All right. I'll, we'll close with that. But first, yeah. I want to say one of the best things about the podcast for me has been the relationships uh-huh. I've created through it. And you're one of those. Uh-huh. And Thanks, I appreciate the friendship we have. And I'm glad that the podcast brought us together. Yeah. Thanks, man. Okay. So what am I supposed to read? The highlighted stuff? Yeah. Plus the Jesus-y stuff if you want. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. <clears throat> If you're struggling to keep your faith afloat, my prayer is for you to have perseverance. Keep daring to spread your arms in the cruciform posture of Jesus, no matter how foolish and fruitless it appears. If you feel disappointed by God, be like Jacob, who didn't let go of God until receiving a blessing. If you're fighting to make sense of a faith, continue to find practices that feed your faith and cease looking for the singular answer that will remove all doubt. Keep trying to trust in God because even when you are unsure about God, we can see in the life of Jesus that God is sure about you. Find a community of people who continue to stretch out their arms and continue to have a song to sing. Find the practices that give life to you and keep the God part of your brain firing. Trust that eventually you will find the beauty that forms the core, the skeleton around which you can build your life. And hopefully you can join me in singing the song that's on my lips now. Philippians 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Love it. Well, Thanks thank for you. writing this book, man. Thank you for having me on your podcast. This, <laughs> this a, has been Meditations with, with Miller. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>